Thanks for tuning in to the Glossy Podcast. I'm your host, senior fashion reporter Danny Parisi. I'm filling in this week for Joe Manoff. And today I'm here with Nate Chekitz. Nate is the CEO and co-founder of the men's apparel and activewear brand Roan. Roan's an eight-year-old brand, and they were part of the wave of DTC brands that launched in the mid-2010s and found success through a lot of the traditional DTC strategies. But in the midst of a lot of changes in the economy and consumer behavior, I wanted to ask Nate about how some of these DTC brands, including Roan, can thrive and and adapt to the changes. So, Nate, thank you so much for being here. It's great to have you on. Thanks, Danny. It's good to see you. Yeah, it's good to see you too. I I feel like it's been a while since we've talked. I've got a bunch of questions I want to ask you, but one thing I've never asked you in all of our conversations, but I've always wondered, where does Roan come from, the name? The name comes from, uh, there's a valley and a glacier that starts in Switzerland and kind of rolls down the eastern corridor of France in this river. So this river stems from this Rhone Glacier, and it's a beautiful part of the world. I spent a couple of years um, in that area and uh, just has always been super meaningful for me. But one of the reasons why I love it is not only is it one of the most beautiful places uh, in the world, it's also was used as a functional trade route. And part of the ethos and emphasis of Rhone has always been marrying kind of aesthetic and function and putting those two things together. So uh, so that's where the name comes from. Oh, I see. Is that the same Rhone as in Cote du Rhone, like the wine? Or is that a yeah, exactly. Name? So that that uh, that wine comes from that region, um, from that valley. There's uh, a number of beautiful, beautiful um, kind of wineries and uh, and 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 that's the most famous of those. It's a great name. It's aesthetically very pleasing to me. The R H O kind of sound is just very it's very nice it's kind of an interesting choice for an activewear brand i mean and and one of the things i wanted to ask you about is i feel like you guys started as activewear but you've a little bit branched out and uh you know there's lots to get to but let's start there so there's obviously been a boom in activewear during the pandemic because anything that was like comfortable and easy to wear at home, I think a lot of people were into. Has that boom or whatever you want to call it held true for you guys? Or do you feel the the urge to kind of branch out a little more and go into other categories and try different things? Well, in, 20, in 2019, we were starting to see our, we call it performance lifestyle, but our lifestyle product which has performance roots and is still true to our kind of active nature of a brand, just absolutely take off. So we launched our um, Italian button-down dress shirt, made it from just beautiful Italian fabric. Um, and it was th- that whole uh, area of our product line was doing very, very well. Where active was, was steady. I mean, it was still growing, but it wasn't growing at the same pace as our lifestyle product. And, um, and so... As you know, in our category, in our space, we're making inventory decisions usually eight to 12 months in advance. So nowhere in our 2019 buying cycle, buying for 2020, did we envision that there was going to be a pandemic or all of a sudden work from home was going to change so dramatically. So 2020 was an enormous challenge for us because the the interest swung right back into active and lounge. And we could not keep those products in stock. I mean, we were chasing inventory. And then it was exacerbated by not only would you not be able to get enough inventory to keep up with demand in a typical calendar year, but now you have supply chain challenges. We have countries just shutting down. Um, and, uh, and so we couldn't keep up with the demand uh, in active in 2020. 
Um, but as we thought about 21, we had to really start making calculated decisions as to when we thought lifestyle was going to come back. Now, certainly we were seeing things like categories like swim and golf and, you know, tennis. That's like somewhere a hybrid between this performance lifestyle and like really active, active, which is gym and, and kind of outdoor running and things like that. So we made some decisions on it and 21 turned out to be a really great year for us. Um, and, uh, and our lifestyle products really started to come back, particularly in the fall of last year. And over the last year, that's what it's been is our commuter pants, our commuter dress shirt, our polos, um, our commuter shorts are, we have this short that we call the resort short, which is meant for kind of travel. You can do anything in it. You can swim in it. You can run in it. You can hike in it. You can play golf in it. Um, but those are the products that have just been killing it for us. Actually, now that you're saying it, I think I remember we talked a couple of months ago about sort of that product um, bridging the gap for people where it's a little more formal. You could wear it out to dinner or something, but it still has the kind of the comfort and the performance material that you guys have a lot of expertise in over the years. Like, is that is that something you're going to see hold, or you expect to see holding for a while that people will like want to wear something a little nicer, but keep that comfort? Yeah. I, our number one product attribute is comfort. It's the, like everything gets tested against that. And so, uh, when we were getting started and I've used this example many times, we were talking to kind of some famous product developers in the space and they said something along the lines of, well, we know men don't really care about comfort or softness in the same way that women do. And I was like, I don't think that's an accurate statement. Like I, I think I think men it's the opposite. Be, yeah, exactly. If anything. I was like, I was like, I think men are really creatures of comfort, and they want to be really comfortable. And they, you know, like I have three boys, and they are so sensitive um, from a tactile standpoint. They like to they like to touch things, and then they want to make sure that the tag is like not rubbing against their neck. And so we've kind of taken that approach of men care deeply about comfort. They care how soft something is. And, but we want, our, you know, the next thing is we want it to be able to perform. And um, because men are also historically well known for being very hard on their product. And so getting something to be soft and comfortable, but durable <laughs> is a challenge. <laughs> and yeah. so, uh, so kind of putting those two things together as we develop product, our lifestyle products, we didn't want to be another J. Crew or any of these lifestyle brands. There's a million of those. We, everything that we make has performance elements. It's either treated with our, um, our process called gold fusion, which makes it, uh, much more wicking friendly. So it will wick away moisture and sweat from the body and also, um, anti odor, uh, and, and kind of protection against odor long, you know, longevity. So most products are treated with these, bacterial type sprays, these antibacterial sprays, which are actually harmful chemicals. They wash out over time. They're terrible for our water system and they only last after 20 washes. They're, it's kind of like the, the standard is 15 to 20 washes. At 100 washes, our garments are still 98% effective against odor. So, uh, so even if we're making a dress shirt, we still use Gold Fusion in that product because guess what? You're going to sweat in a dress shirt if it's 95 degrees in a, on a New York day and you're commuting into the city. Mm -hmm. Which I literally was doing today. It was the day we're recording this. It's like 80 degrees and I was sweating a lot in Manhattan today. Um, I want to ask you about kind of like the supply chain and, and how it's been keeping up with those performance materials across your entire sort of assortment. Like 
is it only these kind of more like high performance materials or, or mixed in there? Is there also just like plain cotton and other stuff or, or, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, well, we do, we do use things like cotton, but when we do cotton, we use a, a long staple regenerative Pima cotton. So again, it's like, you know, I don't even know what to compare it to, but, but not all cotton is created equal. Um, there's, there's, there's certain ways that we, we work with a regenerative farm in Peru that creates this beautiful, long, stable cotton and, um, and, and, and they reproduce on the same land so that we're, it's actually a very sustainable way of creating cotton. We try not to use the word sustainable in our product descriptions because I think so many apparel brands should be accused of greenwashing. And instead, what we try and do is we use this word responsible. We try and make really responsible decisions in terms of how we source and how we create and how we manufacture products. Um, and we're always striving to get better and better about it. Uh, but but yeah, to, to answer your question, we do use um, things like cotton, but then we also use things like merino uh, or, or fabrications like merino wool. Um, and if we use polyester, you know, striving to use more recycled polyester and nylons um, that we think, you know, that we can feel good about putting in front of our customer. Yeah, definitely. Then I want to ask you, like, what what has your experience been like the last maybe six months in terms of getting those materials? Like you said, I, I, you, you're buying uh, eight to 12 months in advance, but um, have you had trouble getting the, getting the things you need and getting it in a timely manner? I feel like I've been hearing that a lot from a lot of different people. I'm wondering what your experience has been. It's definitely been a challenge for us. Uh, and, and part of it is because in an instant, the, 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 what people were wearing changed so dramatically that brands that were less performance focused and using more traditional fabrications started to come and focus on the same kinds of yarns that we were using. And so the pressure, the demand pressure on those, um, on, on these yarns, while also dealing with the supply pressure of not being able to keep, um, factories and mills open has created a challenge to, to it, it like when people talk about inflation and the challenge around inflationary pressure, it was such an obvious thing to me that that was going to happen because in fall of 2020, we were already seeing huge amounts of pressure at the very beginning stages of everything that we make, whether that was zippers or, you know, uh, pocket bags or trims or drawstrings or, um, or yarn and uh, the yarn that's required to make the fabric. And so it was all of a sudden you saw, okay, these prices are going to go up. The fabric price is going to go up. Thus the total end cost to make the garment is going to go up. And then every single company who is just like us is going to face this. And therefore, what are they going to do? They're going to raise prices to the consumer. But all of a sudden everybody's like, oh, wow, this inflation is coming out of nowhere. It's like, no, it started six months ago when we couldn't get the supply um, and the demand uh, just right. So it, it's, been a, it's been a big challenge for us to navigate um, while also trying to maintain our quality standards. And I'm sure it wreaks havoc on your, your margins too, because you've got this, everything calculated out very neatly of we can spend this much and we can sell it for this much and we'll make this much. And then when part of that calculus changes it, you have to like recalculate everything. Um, has, has that been disruptive? And, and when you're, when you're looking at that, like, what do you and your team kind of think about when you're, when you're recalculating or, you know, trying to deal with those, those sudden changes? 
Yeah, it is a challenge. And I think part of it is understanding what you can do from a pricing standpoint. So, you know, what, what will the consumer bear as part of, as part of this? Um, we raised the prices on a couple of our key products. It was, you know, a difficult decision, but our customers didn't push back at all. They were totally understanding and accepting, you know, we, we are a premium brand. Our, our prices are already premium, but our customers know we're not going to sacrifice quality and therefore they were willing to pay for great quality products. Um, you know, I always use the example, our dress shirt is $128, but you know, if you buy the same, there's only one other company in the world that uses the same fabric as us and their dress shirt is over 500 euros. So, um, it's, you know, we always think about price to value and, uh, and so we feel really good about our price to value. But the other thing is about partnering with our mills, partnering with our factories. And then, you know, we try and be really disciplined about running sales or using discount strategies. I see so many brands in our space using a tremendous amount of promotion in order to drive customer acquisition. And of course, there's value to that. But at the end of the day, we want to be known for uh, and I say this to our team, if we're not willing to pay these retail prices, our customer is not going to be willing to pay these retail prices. So we need to hold ourselves to that level of account. And we need to make sure that we feel comfortable and good about selling these at full price. We don't ever artificially price something knowing that we will discount it. We intend to sell it at that price. And, you know, 95% of our sales are, you know, kind of at that level. From my perspective, it seems like there are brands for whom like, a, being a bargain and having discounts and and like that's the selling point and they've worked it into their strategy and it's all fine. And then there are brands, like you said, premium brands where that's not part of the strategy. And I think both can work. And But it seems to me like the problem some brands have had is when you're, you are one and then you end up going towards the other because your customer is not used to that. They're not ready for that. They're not going to accept that, you know? Yeah. You have to be intentional for sure. And, uh, and it is, it's hard because guess what? Discounting works and it can drive tremendous revenue growth, but you're sacrificing your margin and you're in some ways you're sacrificing, um, at least in my mind, the, per, the public perception of what your garment is actually worth. And, um, we don't, we don't generate higher margins because we have higher prices. All of that goes to the benefit of the consumer. We're charging more because it costs more to make and we invest more into the quality of the product. We use like the best zippers, the best buttons, the best pocket bags, the best fabrication, the right drawstrings. And you're, you know, that, that costs more to make. Um, and we work with the best factories in the world. So, uh, you know, people who understand quality, when they get our product, they really, they really get what we're about. When you do make those price adjustments, uh, I know you mentioned it was a hard decision. I'm sure there was a lot of thought that went into it. What's your your communication strategy? Because like I'm sure a big part of it is just communicating that to the customer in like sort of an open, honest way. But I mean, it sounds like like you said they they accepted it pretty easily. But did you guys do anything specific or about how you kind of communicated it? We were really really honest with the customer. I think we've learned. And, uh, I think the customer today appreciates that, that, um, just transparency is everything. We weren't, we were, we tried to you know, be really honest. We're not raising prices to make more money from you. We're raising prices to be able to stay in business and grow the, and grow the business. And, um, and, and like, again, we got much more positive support than we got any kind of negative commentary. I think, 
you know, of the however many hundreds of thousands of customers received the email, you know, we received a lot of positive. And I think there was like three or four negative emails, which was, you know, and again, not to discount it, not to say that it's not, that it's nothing, but it, that's usually a pretty good indication that the customer's accepting and understanding. And we're never, you know, we, we, we take our trust with our customers so seriously because we're just never going to try and break that, um, that trust. And I think they, they know that we don't raise prices just because we feel like we can make more money from the customer. We, we love that price to value formula. That's, that's kind of what we think about. I wanted to go back a second because you, you were talking about how, uh, the challenge you guys have had is that they're is a lot of other brands, a lot of other companies now having interest in the same materials that that you guys have been working with. Something that I've observed is I feel like there are a couple categories, which I would include like activewear, sleepwear, um, underwear, loungewear, whatever you want to call it, like all these that are all sort of in the loose category of just like comfortable, like kind of casual things. And I've noticed that a lot of these brands sort of... Um, moving towards each other or converging a little bit. There's You've got underwear brands who started making swimwear. You've got swimwear brands that started making pajamas. You've got pajama brands that started making activewear. Um, and they've all sort of like, you know, there. it seems like there's a, a, a common, there's common threads, excuse the pun, between these these categories. Have you noticed that too? And, and what's your take on like some of these brands in, in adjacent categories kind of all like getting in on, on each other's business a little bit? Yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's funny. I was speaking to somebody the other day and I just called it a sea of sameness. And, uh, it's in some ways it's, it's frustrating because, uh, when we launched the commuter pant, there was, there was not a single other pant in the market called the commuter pant. We couldn't trademark it because Levi's had had, uh, a, a denim pant back in like 20 oh, yeah. years earlier that they had, had used that with, which we weren't aware of. But now since launching it, like every single brand in our space has a pant and they all call it the commuter pant. And it's just like, you couldn't even come up with a different name for crying out loud. So the amount of imitation and, and look, it's, you know, they, they say that imitation is the highest form of flattery. There's definitely some of that. It's great to see. Um, but we always aspire to be the brand that others are going to try and copy and, and, uh, and imitate. And I've used this example when Apple, uh, has launched new products. They used to put these banners up in their hallways as a nod to Microsoft to say like, Hey, Seattle, start your photocopy machines. And, um, and I think, I think this is the case in every industry. Um, it's a challenge. You're trying to pursue growth. You end up going into other categories. Um, I think many brands try and do too much too fast. We've certainly been guilty of that in the past. And, um, and you know, it's, it, it, it's hard where we've tried to stay really disciplined and focused for us is we've tried to stay hyper-focused on the male consumer, which, uh, again, I think is a pretty unique selling point. So all of our fit, um, and, and, uh, and everything needs to be rooted in performance. But if you don't put up guardrails, it's so easy to be convinced to do something else, you know, the, and people will come up to you and say, you know what I, we've heard recently, you should go into triathlon wear, you know, make wetsuits. And it's like, well, it, <laughs> No, sorry, we're not. We're not yeah. doing that. So you could, I guess, but is it the smartest move? Like, is it does it make the most sense? It's like there's a lot of things you could do, but it's not necessarily doesn't mean you should. Um, speaking of of 
too much too fast. Actually, wait, two things. One, I, w- I was going to say that sort of like hyper-focus and guardrail thing, I, I think that's a really good point. I, I've noticed the same thing. A lot of brands just, it's really, like you said, very easy to convince yourself that you should be doing something that you don't necessarily need to do. The second thing, when you mentioned kind of doing too much too fast, I, I won't ask you to comment specifically on on like, you know, other brands, but um, a good example of that is Allbirds, who was making sneakers very successfully for a long time last year, started doing activewear. And then this year, just a couple of months ago, they are like said they're going to pull back on that. They're going to sell through their inventory. And then I think they're going to sort of retreat from that category a little bit. Um, if you want to offer some thoughts on, on that, I'd, I'd love to hear it. But if you if you don't want to comment specifically on Allbirds, I mean, what would you say are some of the kind of signs that maybe you shouldn't go into a category uh you know. Yeah, I, I mean, I think there are so many great examples of companies that have stayed focused and have done a great job leaning in and doing more with what they have. I mean, a, a good example of this is Bombas built a $200 million sock business before doing anything else. Um, and Allbirds, uh, I think it was north of 200, 250 million before launching uh, apparel. Um, and generally, I think my take is we can do more with the products that we have. I mean, just think about every time you add a new SKU to the line, that's another marketing story that your marketing team has to tell. That is another um, uh, a SKU that your planning team has to figure out how to buy. And it's not just, you know, we, if you, let's use style as the word. When you add in a style, it's usually not just kind of one skew because you have that across multiple size points. You have that across multiple colors that takes place on your retail floor. And it is a challenge because especially in the world of apparel, when you're selling to wholesalers or you're thinking about how this shows up in a retail store, you really have to plan. But in general, where I think we've made the most mistakes is when we try to do too much too fast. And then the customer says, you know, I just really like them for this one thing. I wish they they did that one thing in more colors or in more options. And so we're, we're you know, we, we try to remind ourselves of it, but it's hard. It's, you know, I, I certainly, I don't believe in, in pointing fing- fingers and talk about how other companies could do better. Um, you know, it's it, because anything that any, I could say about anyone else, um, we could certainly be guilty of. So I'm just trying to, I'm trying to learn from our own mistakes and from, you know, from, watching others in the space. Okay, so I wanted to change gears a little bit. Um, one of the things I wanted to ask you is because Roan, I think, you know, you launched in 2014. Um, the the early 2010s and mid-2010s, I think there was a lot of DTC brands, like the ones we've been talking about, Allbirds or like Warby Parker, I think was a couple of years before you guys. There was this big boom of, of DTC brands kind of all using sort of similar strategies. I want to ask about how how that's changed. But to start, what was the sort of atmosphere, the environment like in 2014 when you started Roan? Like, what were you seeing right before you started the brand? And and like, what did you find useful in those very first, like the first year or two in, in that era? And then I want to ask you about kind of how that's changed over time. Yeah, well, I think, uh, I think we're in a unique set, a unique vintage of, of brands that we're able to capitalize on the fact that, you know, the 2010s, that decade was a big shift away from brick and mortar into kind of digital commerce. And there was a window of time where acquiring customers online was much more efficient than it is today. 
And so the, you know, part of the impetus of starting the brand is, okay, we're in this unique period of time. And, and it always kind of annoys me when DTC founders try and take credit for the era in which we live. Like we're not smarter than the previous generation. We're not, you know, we're not more accomplished. I don't care what school you went to, but the, the, there was just a shift in the way consumers were purchasing products. And so almost you could pick any category at that time and say, I'm going to make scented candles and have more of a DTC focus. And chances are, if you were able to raise enough capital and get enough of a, a marketing push, you would find a way to be successful. And so, um, however, uh, what happened is, is, you know, acquisition costs started going up and up and up. The more competition and the more the bigger brands started to realize a little bit late, but started to come into the space, started to spend. And so now getting a brand off the ground with the challenge around acquisition costs digitally, I think is harder than it was a decade ago. I think it's much harder. And, um, and interestingly enough, brands that started like us five to 12 years ago have an opportunity to do brick and mortar in ways that new brands today likely couldn't because we have enough data on our customer and we have enough volume and size that we can kind of lean into those data sets to make smarter decisions around brick and mortar. So I, I know it sounds biased, but I genuinely believe it. I do think DTC brands that are kind of in that vintage of five to 10 years old who are really steeped in data, who the majority of the sales are being generated from a direct-to-consumer perspective, should be valued at a, at a better uh, rate than brands that are you know, maybe older than that or brands that are younger than that. And I think it's just because that vintage has a unique set of circumstances where we were able to lean into customer acquisition early, build really interesting customer acquisition models, um, you know, before iOS 14 and before all these different pieces and use those, harness those data sets to build omni-channel retail uh, brands. And so, you know, that's kind of, uh, that's kind of how I think about it. Um, but that's, you know, in, the, in our mindset, uh, we just be believed in the category and we believed it was an interesting time to go out and build the direct-to-consumer brand. Yeah, no, and, and you're 100% right. Like if you if you read any sort of like historiography or like how historians think about, you know, different events and phenomenon, it's like, there's no universals. Everything is a product of like the historical forces that shaped that moment. So like you said, a lot of those brands were successful because they were taking advantage of lower digital customer acquisition costs and like these specific things that were only happening kind of right then. So it's, it was, like you said, you weren't necessarily smarter than previous generations, but you were smart for that time and and with the the things that were available to you and and yeah the things that worked 10 years ago don't necessarily work now it's all it's all totally it's all contextual yeah and i i think i think companies big and small have gotten smarter about adjusting and um and watching trends really really closely even forms of advertising now you'll see all of a sudden there will be a big push of catalog or radio or, you know, name the, the advertising channel. And then you'll see this kind of uh, migration strategy where people will shift dollars so quickly because we're all trying to figure out how to stay efficient in our marketing efforts. And it's, it is, it's a tremendous challenge. 
Yeah, and and I I noticed that too. And sometimes you'll hear about a bunch of brands doing linear TV advertising on like cable right. or something. Like yeah, out, that's like the big thing right now. Yeah, yeah, and and it's kind of just it just goes wherever is the you know the most efficient acquisitions. Speaking of of marketing, like like you said, I think that was a big part of the success of a lot of the brands from that vintage, as you call it. Um, what's your what can you tell me about your your marketing budget now? Like, do you do you still find like the the digital marketing spend being like a, a super valuable or even like the most important thing for you guys, or do you kind of feel like you know just good product, market it kind of efficiently, and just kind of let it go on its own? You know what I mean? Or I feel like there's a lot of brands where it's just ninety percent marketing, and then like that's like the only way that they grow. Yeah, there, there's certainly been over the last year, uh, kind of a realization among investors and, uh, and those investing in these brands that, you know, you can, it's just a math game, right? If, if all of a sudden we wanted Rome to double in size, we mathematically can figure out exactly how to do that based on spent. However, there is a, um, a point along that growth curve where you're going to see marginal gains and the efficiency really starts to drop off. And so, so <laughs> the, you have to make decisions as operators how fast you want to grow, how, how much money you're willing to invest in that. And there is an, has unfortunately and, and fortunately you know, for us, given our position, um, there's been a reaction in the market to brands that are just bleeding money to chase growth. Um, we've tried really hard never to do that. We haven't had the luxury of being able to do that. Brands that have you know, raised hundreds of millions of dollars are, you know, there are brands that are losing $40 million a year to chase growth. And, uh, and so we, you know, we obviously try not to be, uh, anywhere near that we're, we're, we're profitable. We, you know, we, we demand that, um, for us as a, as a business. Um, but it's, it is, it's been interesting to watch how that curve has changed. And so, what we believe is that we need to make great product. That's the best form of advertising that we can do. We certainly continue to invest in traditional advertising channels. Um, Traditional for us, meaning like traditional in in terms of Google and Facebook, which are the two primary spends for most TTC brands. But we do spend a bit of our marketing budget into brand marketing because we think that that, that builds longevity with the customer, even if you're not seeing the direct return on that investment. And so it's uh, it's always a tricky balance. It's a constant conversation, and we're not just analyzing that on an annual basis. We're analyzing that on a weekly basis. I want to come back to the the profitability thing and and like the growth through profitability rather than growth while bleeding money. But just before we do that, real quick, are there any other channels for marketing that you're using that are platforms, uh, whether it's brand marketing or marketing or performance marketing, that are a little bit. Um, outside the box that's been helpful for you, like meaning other than Facebook or Google? Well, I'd, uh, what I'd say is that if we found anything that was like a secret saucer that we really believed in, I probably wouldn't share it on this podcast <laughs> just because <laughs> it's so... Keep to yourself. Tr- yeah, it's so tricky. It's like when you find when you find something that's working really well, you, you, you kind of got to monetize it as quickly as possible because inevitably it's going to get out, hey, this is working, this brand's seeing a good return here. And then you see this kind of gold gold rush to um, new advertising methods and platforms. But 
what I've learned, you know, people always ask us, what was your big like viral moment or your one? We haven't had one. There hasn't been one moment in time where it's like all of a sudden the brand, what we've tried to do is we've tried to be really consistent in making great products, making sure the customer knows and can find out about those. Um, and yeah, there are little blips and moments where you find hidden pockets within, you know, a, a new platform like TikTok. Uh, where you can see some efficiencies and some gains, but um, but most of that is smoke and mirrors and great marketers using great marketing to get companies to spend more money in certain spaces. Yeah, and and there are a lot of elements of of this business, both fashion apparel, but also just like business being an entrepreneur in general. Where I feel like there is a a path where you could bleed money and just chase and hope for those like sudden viral spikes. Uh, and then there's kind of the slow and steady path. Yeah. And, and like, yeah, the former might be more attractive and it might look very flashy and you see the successes and you're like, oh, well, they didn't even spend that much. And then they had this huge, you know, success. Uh, but they're very rare, I would say, like of the all the all the and this applies to a lot of different things. But, uh, you know, in companies, there are many companies who bled money for a long time and then ultimately they just collapse because they yeah. were bleeding money for such a long time. Um, yeah, uh, Danny, I'm going to tell you the ultimate secret right now. I probably shouldn't say this on this podcast, but I'm going to tell it to you anyways. Yeah. There is no secret. There's no secret. Like That's the thing that you realize when you do this long enough. There's just no secret. Obviously, there's some good luck that can happen to some brands. You get a, the right celebrity to wear your product at the right time. But even that, I mean, we've had some of the biggest celebrities in the world wear our product, be photographed, featured in an article, cited that they're wearing our product. It doesn't doesn't change the game. The only thing that seems to work is being really consistent, and um, at least over time. I mean, if you want to have kind of a, a a a right moment, right time, hyper growth, get a good exit, good timing, you may as well be playing the lottery because it just that it doesn't seem like the odds are any better um, for that to happen. And I think the harder path. It's like anything in life is just to try and do things consistently well. And over time, you're much more likely to have good results. Yeah, it, it's like there has never been a get rich quick scheme that was real because if it if that was real, then everyone would do it and everyone would be rich. Like there's <laughs> That's exactly, you, exactly right. If you want to like make money fast or whatever, it's like you're the best thing is just like get a good job and work it. You yep. know, like there's yep. Um, so I, it's not I as sexy, ask, but it's true. It's not. And, and that's why people go for the sexier, less like more dangerous, less of a sure bet thing because of how exciting it is. Um, on that topic, I wanted to ask, uh, I was Googling beforehand and I, and I couldn't find anything. Um, you guys have not raised any, any outside funds in, in a while, right? We haven't, yeah, we haven't, uh, shared anything around our, um, capitalization process okay. for, for some time. Yeah. So you did mention um, physical retail, and and again from from some googling, I, I've seen you talk about how that that's something you want to invest more in. Um, what's your what's your store situation now, and and where would you like it to be? So we have seven um, retail stores open right now. We are opening quite a few in the next few months um, that we're uh, excited to talk about, and we're planning on growing our retail footprint. Um, all of our stores are profitable. All of our stores are showing really exciting uh, unit economics around them, meaning not, o- not only are they driving profitability on a per store basis, on a four wall basis, but in addition to that, the impact that they're having on our e-com 
uh, stores that are is a- absolutely identifiable, trackable. You know, you're seeing halo effects anywhere between 18 and 30 percent on a store basis in a neighborhood lift. Um, and there's all kinds of efficiencies that are coming from it. You know, I, I understand why direct-to-consumer brands were hesitant to go into retail. And honestly, it is a fundamentally different business. It's not like, oh, hey, we make clothes. We know how to sell them online. It's so easy. Get a physical space and just do the same thing. It is an entirely different business. It's like building roads and selling rowboats. Like they're just not even the same thing. Um, But once we started down the path, and we started building out the team and we started building out the expertise and we started building out the connectivity points between the stores. It was like, gosh, okay, now we've got this and we understand the product. Let's figure out how to, how to scale and ramp this up because it has some, some nice efficiency. So we absolutely believe in retail. We're not going to, our, our retail strategy and real estate strategy is discipline like everything else. You see brands that are going and opening 25 to 40 stores, you're going to make mistakes when you do that because um, the market knows and understands that quickly. We're hearing about brands that are overpaying or paying above asking and, and, and opening bigger stores than probably they should. Um, and we're just, we just try not to do that. So we're staying pretty disciplined. We're opening good stores in great markets with great locations. And we're willing to be patient to wait for the right location in the right center to open up. Um, and there's plenty of white space out there that we don't need to rush to make bad decisions. Something I'm noticing, Nate, a theme in this conversation is is discipline and patience. Like it, it seems like your philosophy is is you know like we were just saying, there's no secret. It's just kind of like don't open a hundred stores, and you know when you especially if you're kind of new to it, so it, would you say that that's kind of like a guiding principle for you? Is just sort of like patience, discipline, and and you know, not going for the flashy and, and dangerous. Yeah. I'm, I'm certainly attracted to trying to do the right thing. And, um, and I think one of the challenges is that when you bring in investors and certain kinds of investors, there is a crazy amount of pressure to grow at all costs. And, um, and we've been victims of that. We raised money really early on, earlier than probably we should have. And I, I made the mistake of saying, these investors want us to grow faster. They heard about brand X and brand X is growing here. We've got to do this. This you know, is just, and, um, and I've really learned and figured out a way to not have that same level of pressure based on our capitalization structure to, um, to just not make bad decisions to try or to try not to make bad decisions and to always try and we want to build a brand that's going to be around for a hundred years. So in order to do that, we can't ruin our trust with our customer and we can't make bad decisions on real estate because usually these are five, seven, sometimes 10 year deals. And so, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm glad you're hearing that as a theme because that's definitely something that a mantra that we talk about uh, all the time internally is just doing the real work and not trying to take shortcuts. Okay. Last thing I want to ask you about last topic. Um, I believe you guys, so you're obviously Ron is a direct-to-consumer brand, and it has been for a while. Um, I believe you guys have a little bit of wholesale, though, right? You we do, Nordstr- yeah. Nordstrom and anyone else, or just Nordstrom? No, we work with Nordstrom. We we were we work very closely with Equinox. Um, uh, yes. For a long time, before Peloton started doing private label, we were their number one selling men's brand. 
Um, but with the way we think about uh, wholesale is we think about volume drivers like Nordstrom that help us, you know, that, that, and we've got a great partnership with them. They're, you know, they've got such great established trust with their customers. Um, we've, uh, but then there's also, you know, what we, we think of as acquisition channels through wholesale. So this is like showing up in the right specialty store, the great, the great local running store where, you know, they're going to take great care of their customers, um, or the right ski shop in, uh, in an interesting resort town. Um, we work with some high end, uh, resorts like the four seasons and, and, uh, and the Ritz Carlton and others where we know our customers likely going to be staying, but maybe they forgot their running shorts that day and they're going to walk into the store and they're going to discover Roan and then, you know, hopefully go back. So, um, that's how we think about our wholesale strategy is breaking it out into these kind of, you know, big volume drivers and then also customer acquisition vehicles where we're going to make some margin while also acquiring new customers. That's so interesting that you say that because I feel like the, the, your own physical retail stores are also like an acquisition channel, like you mentioned no question. too. So like, because you guys, uh, you know, it, I, I would guess the bulk of your business is still direct. Like you can still do these other channels and they can still make, you know, they can still make you money on their own, but then they also are all serving this, this double purpose of they're also bringing people back into the direct channel. That the way, the simplest way to think about it is we're long-term relationship people. I mean, I remember the first time you and I met and I remember when, you know, we started developing a relationship with, uh, with Glossy. We want to do the right thing by our friends, our partners, by our customers. And so wholesale for us is just another outlet, another vehicle for us to establish an initial relationship that we hope will develop into a long-term direct relationship. Last question. I've heard from a couple of people uh, who are, you know, from a direct-to-consumer brand, when you when you do start a relationship with a wholesaler, especially if you're having just like, you know, one or two stores that uh, if it's a big store, especially, they can be a little pushy or they, there can be a little bit of pu- push and pull with this relationship. Um, in, in your wholesale, like, do you have a, a strategy or an approach in order to kind of like keep the wholesale relationship just to what you want it to be and, and not kind of like give into pressures, whether direct or indirect. I, how do you kind of just keep, you know, Roan's strategy intact when you're now working with a third party who's, who's outside the company? Yeah, it's a challenge. Uh, and, and certainly wholesalers, the, the really smart ones, they will come and they, you know, they want certain things that you don't want to give them. And, you know, what I would say is, um, it goes back to that same word that we used before. It's about being disciplined and trying to use um, an approach of not just thinking about this season, or uh, but but thinking about two years from now. If you start making bad decisions in terms of the products that you're giving them or the accommodations that you're giving them, you know you're you're likely just signing yourself up for uh, you know for future seasons of pain. And um, but you know similarly for big accounts and big partners. We need to think about their business too. We need them to be hitting certain margin targets because otherwise they're not going to want to work with us in the long run. So it's just trying to take a longer term perspective in all the decision making um, and and also remind them, hey, we're, we're not in this for a season. We're not in this for two seasons. We're in this for years and years of partnership. And anytime we, we try and stay firm on our decisions, it's because we've got that longer term lens and... Uh, and again, it takes time to develop that and to get the whole team bought into that philosophy from our sales team to our finance team to our marketing team. 
But I, th- I think we really have that around the company right now, and I think it's going to bear long-term fruit. Beautifully put, Nate, and thanks for bringing it back to the theme of discipline one final time. Thank you so much for, for stopping by, and again, it's always great talking to you. Thanks, Danny. That's all for this week's episode. Our theme music was by Otis McDonald. If you haven't already, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you're listening to this podcast, and make sure you subscribe to The Glossy Podcast, too. Thanks for listening.